Forge family, today we continue on into our study in the book of Ephesians. Last time together we looked at the greeting from Paul to the saints who were to receive that circular letter sent from house arrest in Rome. We unpacked the grace and peace that flowed from heaven to those set-apart holy ones, the saints, and from Paul himself. Then Paul began a huge sentence. It was 200 words long. It spans verses 3 to 14, in which he teaches the believers that they were chosen out by God the Father before the beginning of time. And, and it wasn't just God the Father. It was the Trinity. Okay, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, together chose you out <clears throat> to be holy and blameless before them. He followed with the choice of God to adopt us as sons and daughters, making us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He then chose to redeem us from our sin. In spite of the fact that we were born in sin and we made our own choices and trespasses, the Father paid the ransom to set us free from sin and death with the blood of his own Son. God the Father uh, called out, adopted, redeemed, and set apart to be holy and blameless. Then all wisdom and the insight that knows how to put wisdom to work, God the Father made known that we were made an inheritance to our Lord Jesus. Amen. To the end that God's plan from the beginning was that the Jews would hear first, and some, some would rush to him as Messiah, the risen Lord. And it was also revealed that God had planned that the Gentiles would, would hear of the risen Christ and come into the family of God, the body of Christ. Those Gentile brothers and sisters were sealed in the Holy Spirit, just as we are. That giving of the Holy Spirit was the pledge, the down payment, that guarantees the promises of God will indeed come to pass. And all this list in the first 14 verses is destined to release great praise to the glory of God. So let's pray. Lord, what an amazing revelation of your work to bring us out of slavery to sin and darkness into your light, your family, and your purposes. Thank you. We stand humbled at the magnitude of your love and care and your plans and destiny for us. We would be people who press in to listen for your voice. To, we press in to obey what you tell us to do. And we press in to demonstrate your presence to others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, we begin today in verses 15 to 17. And it says this, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So as that passage begins in verse 15, he says, for this reason, the reason, okay, is all those things he, that were outlined in the first 14 verses. Remember? It was being chosen, being adopted, being redeemed, etc. Okay? It is that list 
that is laid out and that um, that was being now embraced by the saints. Their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for one another had made them such an impact that Paul, a thousand miles to the west, had heard of them. Now, note, it's not faith or love. It has to be both to bring glory to God. Church history is filled with those who had immense faith, but no love for either the church members, their theological opponents, or the lost. Jonathan Swift, who was a, a pastor, said, We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Kent Hughes' response to Swift was, quote, Our surface Christianity arms us with what we think are proper prejudices and a rationale for criticizing those who fall short, keeping them at arm's length. That the Ephesians have this great love in their hearts for one another is evidence of Holy Spirit at work in their midst. Likewise, there are those who love one another. They lavish care on one another, but blatantly deny any contact with faith in Christ Jesus. It takes both faith and love to be welcomed in God's presence. Paul Hearing of both faith and love among the brothers and sisters is impelled by his thanksgiving to keep the saints in Ephesus before the Lord in his prayers. Verse 17 reveals the content of Paul's prayers. He's praying to God the Father that those church members in Ephesus and the others who will receive this circular letter, okay, that, that uh, they would be gifted by Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom. Now, that's the same word, Sophia, that we looked at in verse 8. <clears throat> Paul asks further for a spirit of revelation to come on those people. Well, in the scripture, it is the Holy Spirit himself who is that spirit of revelation. Paul desires that God the Spirit be in and all over the lives, choices, and ministries of the Ephesians. Lastly, Paul asks that this set of spiritual gifts, wisdom and revelation, be in the knowledge of him. Okay, The word here for knowledge is greatly amplified. It is epigenosis, okay? which is knowledge that's true, accurate, full, intimate, thorough knowledge which includes knowledge by experience. All the believers in Ephesus experienced the presence of Holy Spirit and the power of God Almighty. Then their knowledge will abound, and as will their wisdom and revelation from above. In contrast to the prayer of Paul for wisdom and revelation, in the intimate knowledge of God, too many of our brothers and sisters in North, in North America today, are practicing the wisdom of the world system, which is to know yourself. Okay? They're fully occupied gaining an intimate knowledge of themselves, answering their own questions, and dealing with their own struggles. Okay? They're, they're set on improving their whole being, their gestalt, rather than seeking to know the depths of God in Christ. 
their end product is going to be a collection of good men and women, not a family of godly men and women. Our deep need is to know Jesus, to know the Father, to know Holy Spirit, wider, higher, deeper, stronger. Luke 11.3 says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to the one who asks him? Verses 18 to 21 illumine more of the prayer uh, that that Paul is, is praying. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the, glo- of, the, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. All right, one at a time. Paul prays that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Okay, the heart in scripture is the pivot point of your life, the fulcrum of your being where your intelligence, emotions, and will reside. Paul is asking that our spiritual fulcrum, our spiritual center, be given greater spiritual sight. Paul begins with with what that is. It's hope. This hope has been sealed in us by Holy Spirit, the Arabon, the down payment, the guarantee that that hope is real and, and it will... It will be fulfilled soon. We want to be with Jesus Christ in eternity in his glory. Hope shuts out depression and despair. Our hope is that the Father calls us to be with him. He's making us like he is and is taking us to be with him. And that enlightenment of the heart falls in the perfect tense in Greek. It means past completed enlightenment with present continuous results. The saints that are being written to formerly had lived in great darkness. But now, coming to Christ, as their heart is enlightened, the lights are coming on and they're staying on in their hearts. Second, the people of Yahweh, who were led out of Egypt in the Exodus, you know, they were described as Yahweh's inheritance. So, too, are we. Paul wants his readers to know how much God deeply values and cherishes them. They're God's incredibly valuable and glorious inheritance. He plans on presenting them, that's us, okay, plans on presenting them as, quote, the first fruits of, of the reconciled universe, according to F.F. F. Bruce. That mass of billions of believers that have been called out and now made into the inheritance of the Lord God are those the Lord has gathered and redeemed for himself, and they are precious to him. Third, Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus that they experience the surpassing, over-the-top greatness of the power of God the Father that is toward 
or it's directed toward us who believe. This is not power that God has ginned up to throw a universe-wide fireworks display. Okay, It is inherent power, resident in him, exhibited by his omnipotence. Then Paul starts to stack synonyms as he describes the outpouring of God's power in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Side by side, he places dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. He follows it immediately with the word energeia, which we, from which we get our word energy. He follows it in such a way that this energy and this power of God is displayed in the resurrection, but it is also displayed in the raising and ascension of Jesus to sit at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places. No other being can exhibit such pure power and pure intent. That power is available to the brothers and sisters by Holy Spirit as they walk out their calling. It is ready and available for you as well as you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and listen to the voice of the Spirit. The language Paul uses to describe the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father mirrors Psalm 110 verse 1. Quote, the Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you en- make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Unquote. For David, this was a royal enthronement song. The scholar David Hay says that this original, the original sense of this psalm was that, quote, a particular Israel monarch, David, reigned with the power and authority of Yahweh himself. The seating of Jesus, the risen Christ at the right hand, endues him with all the power and authority of the Father, as well as all that the Lord had, Lord Jesus had voluntarily laid down to become a man. That all came back to him. The ascension of our Lord Jesus does at least five things. Number one, it completes the resurrection. Jesus ascended into heaven in a body just like ours. Number two, he became the first fruit of his people. The first in the harvest he guarantees. Jesus ascended to begin his ministry of intercession for his people as the high priest. From the right hand of the Father, he is the dispatcher of Holy Spirit. And fifth, his ascension speaks of the super-exaltation of the risen Christ over everything. Next, here in the text, we get a solid taste of Paul's cosmology. That view of the powers of the universe broken down between the rebellious forces of Lucifer, who was thrown down from heaven with one-third of the angels, set against two-thirds of the holy angels standing with the Trinity. Now here, Jesus, the risen Christ, reigns over all rulers and world rulers. Well, in Greek, that's the archontes and the cosmokratores. He reigns over the authorities and the heavens and the earth. They are the exousiae. He reigns over the powers, the dunamis, and he reigns over the dominions, the cosmokratores. Excuse me, the Curia Tetes. 
These were spiritual powers and rulers, both in the second heavens, on the earth and under the earth, empowered by Satan. <clears throat> Paul does not see them in any way as rivals of God's sovereignty, majesty, and supremacy, but he does see them as su supernaturally powerful opponents that cannot be trivialized or ignored. You know, those are good words there from Clinton Arnold, one of the, one of the great commentators that I'm, I'm working with. I really appreciate his work. <clears throat> Paul continues to say that the reign of Jesus on the right hand, sitting, sitting next to the Father, exceeds every name that is named in the time of Paul, in our day, and in the age to come. Now, think with me about recent history. You know, the last... 250 years, okay? The name of the risen Christ stands tall compared to King George III. He was the English monarch that the American forces set back on his heels to win the Revolutionary War, okay? So King George III, Robespierre, Napoleon Bonaparte, Karl Marx, Adolf Hitler, Emperor Hirohito, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, Kim Jong-il, and Abu Bakr Baghdadi. That's just a handful, just a few of them. All of whom drew on the powers of darkness to extend their rule. The name of Jesus excels beyond every name that is named in our age and the next. In verses 22-23, focus on the role of the risen Christ and the church. Quote, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over the things, all things to the church, which in his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now, here further, God's power displays Christ's absolute lordship. Father God established the feet of Jesus, reigning and ruling over all things both created and made. He placed his son as head over all things to the church. Jesus Christ, risen Messiah, is the head of the body, the ecclesia, the gathering of all of us, called out ones who trust in him for their salvation and who love the Father. There is a further affirmation of Christ as the creator of all the universe set in motion by him and intimately and also intimately maintained by him, but just by the word of his power. He speaks and he maintains the universe. <clears throat> now, the, the sweet thing here is. There's a further affirmation of Christ as the, as the creator of the universe uh, and simply because he, he is also the one who, who created the ecclesia. It was made by him, gathered, gathering all those redeemed by his blood, bought out of Satan's domain, and made holy so that we sit with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. This body, the church, is to be the bride of Christ. Kent Hughes finishes this passage with just sweet sentences, okay? He says, quote, We complement the head, who is Christ. We are the church, 
filled up, and we fill up Christ, who in every way fills the universe. Our Lord Jesus Christ has an inexplicable, unfathomable love for us, so that he sees himself as a groom, incomplete without us. So, Forge family, think now about why Paul prayed for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. What is here in this text for you? Now, there's spiritual gifts to ask for. Wisdom, revelation, the presence of Holy Spirit. Paul prays that when we're, our eyes are truly open, we will know God the Father experientially and intimately. We will cling to our hope. We will grow to be precious to the Father. And we will experience the power of God as we grow up into him. We're on our way to a wedding, dressed in white, and our bridegroom is waiting. On the way, we get to see his handiwork in the church and in us. Love, faith, engagement with Holy Spirit, and God's limitless power. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the demonstration of your love and power in the resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus. Soon, we will be caught up with him and be with you. As we wait, we want to be those in the body of Christ who give rightful thanks and praise to you. Thank you for anchoring our hope to Holy Spirit. Come quickly, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.